Meet and I have uh, gotten to know each other a little bit over the last few days, and, and I have to tell you, such a fascinating man, fascinating story, and a true, true uh, health transformer uh, in his own right, and he's been doing it for many years. Um, so I just wanted to <clears throat> just touch base. I mean, you're, you're the chief medical officer of one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world. You have multiple products and projects that you're responsible for. I want to just take it down to a personal level first and just ask you, what is your personal health moonshot? Yeah, thank you. By the way, hi, everyone. Uh, I feel very old today just looking around the room. So, <laughs> um, so I, I, I joined, um, you know, in my career, I started off in medicine treating individuals. I'm a cardiologist. I'm an intensive care physician. So I used to get immediate gratification treating one patient at a time. I joined the industry with a view in cardiovascular to treat millions of people and treat and potentially cure cardiovascular diseases. And I was very fortunate to have developed loads of drugs uh, in this space. And now I find myself back into a kind of more corporate role and with an opportunity to change healthcare for millions of people. But to be fair, my moonshot would be, how can we change industry to go back to treating individuals with all the technologies that we have and get back to really making the lives and democratizing health worldwide but for the individual, leveraging innovation, scientific innovation, and technology innovation. So that would be my, my moonshot, kind of uh, for personal yeah. moonshot that I hope I can, we can achieve as an industry. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you, you mentioned uh, you know, in, our, in our past conversations that it, it, it's been an interesting, interesting career because you started treating individuals, you went, moved to treating the masses, and you know that you're going to hopefully end treating, treating individuals individual. again. So yeah. it's, it's, it's quite a journey. So talking about democratizing medicine, democratizing healthcare, um, over, the, over the next few years, over the next 10, 20 years, how do you think medicine and farm is going to change? Well, so number one, I think that um, healthcare is changing very rapidly. I think that's driven by both the scientific innovations around genomics, proteomics, transcriptomics, it's changing dramatically. I mean, the cost of the new, new gen sequencing is kind of come down, you know, tenfold, uh, and it's just now making it more accessible. But that's coupled with the data changes. The data is getting cheaper. Uh, the healthcare environment, data is a new healthcare currency. So both of those things are actually exploding how healthcare is changing. Uh, and so to me, I think that the biggest change will be how does our industry, which is largely an analog industry today, uh, move to a new world and become a much more technology hybridized industry. I mean, you know, if you think about what it takes to develop a drug today, you know, we, it costs us $1.6 billion to develop a drug. One in 10 of the drugs we develop actually ever pays back its, its full development costs. And yet the costs of development keep increasing and the, the outcome or the, the, the rewards of the drugs that we develop are dropping. Uh, nearly 50% in the last eight years, you know, and that's been the change. So, and if you look at what we do, it's ridiculous. If you just take the, the clinical development process, I mean, none of you ever stand to, you know, call a cab, you kind of call Uber, you probably don't even visit a bank. Yet we expect patients today to go and enroll in a clinical site, to go and visit every month or three months to do their visits, do their blood tests at home, and then we use that data to then make an interpretation of what the drug is going to do in the real world. So that's crazy. So, if you, so what we've decided to do, look at is how is the world changing? How is technology shifting healthcare? And how does industry need to now capitalize on it yep. to completely, completely fundamentally shift 
healthcare. So how do we now industrialize research and development using artificial intelligence and find better ways to get drugs? How do we take the whole middle process of drug development and actually use telehealth? And why can't people do trials at home? Why can't we use wearables? And how can we actually make sure that data comes in rapidly, is embedded at, at a completely fraction of the cost that it is today? Yeah. And, and then how do we follow that patient up? So once a drug is developed, how do we augment the outcomes uh, with technologies, with drugs plus solutions? And then how do we monitor that so we get back down to you as an individual, this is your response, this is how we can actually make it work for you, and this is how you sh we can actually give you a service, and this is what the drugs that will most suit you. So how do we get back to that? And then apply that globally. So we're not just developing drugs, which much of our industry does today, mostly for the US, but we can use the virtual clinics and the cost of development to actually do that globally, and that would be a real dream. And I think that technology enables us to democratize healthcare. Right. So it's interesting. If you go back a few years ago, there's, there were a bunch of articles about um, whether digital health <clears throat> excuse me, was a real movement, whether digital health would, is really going to ever change the way healthcare is delivered, change the way medicines are developed. Um, in, in your mind, it, digital health is, is sort of where it's at. It's going to not only change the cost of developing these drugs, but also the time frame and the timeline of developing I, I think it's inevitable. I think to ignore it is, uh, is folly. I mean, if you look today, there are already, I think, 40 hospitals in the US that are virtual, you know, they do virtual care, yep. right? In China, there are 150 cloud-based hospitals that already treat millions of patients virtually with, uh, at home. And so why are we developing drugs in a, in a system which is no longer analogous to the way that the healthcare system is going to actually evolve in the future. Yep. You know, I mean, none of you will want to continually visit doctors uh, in clinics, wait there, uh, you know, when you don't even go to the bank to check your bank accounts or to withdraw money, right? So why, why is that not true of healthcare? So I think it's going to fundamentally shift. Our problem is that our industry hasn't necessarily rapidly adapted to it because there's lots of regulatory constraints, people are worried about privacy and the regulations, but I think all of that's changing. Yeah. And I think the more the patient gets empowered and demands a different level of care, a level of individualization, and a participation in, their, in, their, in the innovation, yep. that will force industry anyway to change. So, Yeah. <clears throat> it, it's, it's interesting. As um, I, I think that uh, the point that you brought up, we don't wait in lines at banks. I mean, as a matter of fact, I can't even tell you the last time I went into the bank. But you're right. Wh why is it that we, we still allow... Um, the the healthcare system to to sort of dictate the way they're going to be giving medicine. Do you think anybody can predict where medicine and how healthcare is changing? I, I don't think any of us can truly kind of predict it. We can probably have some directional vectors of what's going to happen. I think that you know I think we can predict that actually care is going to become much more individualized. Care is going to be much more personalized. You know I call many of you the genomials, right? The genomic yeah. generation because you want to know and want to predict, you want to know your genome, you want to understand what it means for you, you want to share your data where it makes sense, you maybe want to commoditize your information, you want to have your care at home. So I think those trends are going to have to be accommodated. Uh, what that actually means in terms of organizations, they have to accommodate it, business models, uh, we can't predict, right? And the other thing that I'm not sure about is the technology companies, right? Technology companies, today are crossing sectors. 
So the traditional companies that we thought, you know, this is the pharmaceutical industry, this is the healthcare, nobody's going to impinge on our domain because, you know, we know science and we know biology. Well, guess what? The technology companies are going, are hiring computational biologists and doing predictive modeling. They're entering healthcare. They understand more about individuals, consumer needs, and their health requirements than probably the industry does. Yep. So I think the, the sectors are getting blurred now, and yeah. I think that it's fundamentally going to shift. So as these sectors blur, as the technology starts sort of invading into all, all aspects of healthcare, how is Sanofi preparing for the future? Yeah. So, so we, we, uh, we have kind of a two-phase approach. You know, we, as I said, we're an analog company, and there's still lots of technology coming and, and uh, being tested. So what we decided to do is to break down the process of drug development into kind of its phases. So we said, what can we do to improve drug discovery? What can we do to improve the clinical trial process? And so we're taking a sort of traditional approach to say, well, if you apply technology today in the best available tools, how can you speed all of those individual approaches up? How can you do the same uh, for, for commercialization or get educating physicians? So we've, for example, on the drug development process, we've partnered with a company called Science37 mm -hmm. to say, oh, can we get into, can we leverage a telehealth approach to research by having patients do their, do their, do their trials at home? Yeah. Uh, how much does that save us? How much better is the experience? How much more does it teach us about the, the actual uh, environment? And does that help us to really shorten the enrollment time? Uh, we've got, for example, how do we actually learn about our medicines in the real world? So we've set up a, a platform with a company called Palantir, uh, which is, we're calling it Darwin AI, and we have just loaded up just over 300 million lives uh, into that platform, which across many diseases that tells us, including lab data, pharmaceutical, uh, pharmacy data, claims data, money, uh, all the rehospitalizations. Um, but we get now begin to get a more orthogonal view of patients in the real world that allows us to maybe do trials. So we've done simulated trials uh, in that data set that may actually fundamentally shift why do we have to do clinical trials to address questions which can be addressed in, in weeks or months for a fraction of the cost compared to hundreds of millions to do prospective trials over years. So we're kind of really looking at this and working with the regulators to see is that going to be an acceptable way going forward. Um, we're looking at drugs plus. So how do we augment, with many of your inventions, augment the impact of our drugs? Because as we talked about before, um, it takes about eight years to develop a drug. But actually, healthcare has changed so much, and technologies emerged. So how can we augment the outcomes, the efficacy, the precision of our delivery of a drug through some of the technologies that you guys are inventing? And so we actually have a number of these drugs plus mm -hmm. kind of um, partnerships that are testing, can we change behavior? Can we add um, diagnostics into this? Can we create an integrated care where a drug, an ecosystem of services plus technologies can build a complete closed loop that for an individual? So we have a company, uh, a spin out with uh, Verily called Onduo that's testing that. So we have a number of these initiatives that we, we're doing right now. That's phase one. Yeah. If those hit, our next step will be how do we build that into an integrated ecosystem and organizational structure that makes this a natural process from end to end. So we'll then transform ourselves, hopefully in a few years' time, to a new sort of pharmaceutical company that can actually do all of this in a combined and, and um, fully loaded fashion. Yeah, it's an amazing vision. Uh, one of the things that you just said, I think, sort of uh, piqued my interest, and it's 
it sounds like you're making partnerships and doing partnerships with external innovators, with health yeah. transformers on the outside of uh, Sanofi. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about how you how you develop those partnerships? Where yeah, sure. where are you finding the companies? And also, you know, pharma classically has been very difficult to break into for smaller companies. They've got great ideas. They've yeah. they're working passionately about it, but then sort of hit a roadblock. How do how do they end up yeah. um, getting your attention and working with you? Yeah. So a couple of things actually. It's a really good question. So um, first of all, it's very hard to attract entrepreneurial techie individuals and data people into big pharma because nobody wants to work for an analog-based company. It's really hard to get that kind of mindset in. Uh, and, and you know, we are a big believer, both in science and in technology, that actually partnerships is the way forward. You know, the best innovations happen externally. Um, so what we're now working out is that these kind of, coming to a place like startup health, being really present, is one of the best ways for us to actually immerse ourselves in the ecosystem um, of innovation that you guys are doing. Because you are interested in health and, and are innovating around it. We want to know, how can your innovations help us? But more, what are you going to do that's shaping the environment that we can adapt our model to? So, and we also have, for example, uh, we participate in, a, in, a, in VivaTech, which is another, it's like the CES of Europe, where we also take our problem statements and we invite companies to pitch at that and say, well, what would you do differently to address our problems? And then we kind of select from there. So we, we're trying to do that. We also have a venture fund internally now that is very, very active. And we've done a number of partnerships with Evidation, as an example, or Amada Health, which is looking at behavior. Uh, and just trying to learn to say, well, what's the, what are they doing? What's, what's cool about it? And so we, we invite people, we scan, and then we invest in them. We do business development deals with a lot of companies. So we want that kind of an interaction uh, as much as we can. But we're also trying to find people internally. So if anyone's interested, you know, if you're interested in, in data sciences or you want to kind of be an entrepreneur from the inside, we want to try and protect that. So when we bring companies in or we want to work with them, we try not to shroud them in the kind of bureaucracy of a big pharma company that would, that would stifle them. You know? So we have to try and find new models of working with them as well. Yeah, oh, amazing. Um, so we have about 10 minutes left, and uh, I wanted to make sure that we could uh, take a couple questions from the audience if uh, anybody has any questions. Um, uh, we have a microphone in the background. If you can just raise your hand. If not, we can keep talking. Any questions from anybody? Sure. Yeah, sure. I, I think the question, if you didn't hear it, was how do, we, how do we work with the FDA or the regulators to get shorter trial time? So number one, um, the FDA already is, a, is very proactive. They've appointed a chief digital officer. Uh, they're very interested in looking at, uh, with the, the 21st Century Cures Act, how do we get, for certain diseases, a very different way to look at data, shorter, shorter review times. Um, and they're also very interested in looking at different models of doing trials, so real-world evidence trials where there are now examples where people are using their data from real world for control against actually using um, and using their own innovative drug on top of that. So it makes it very cheap and very quick to do that. And in Europe, they're already looking at things called adaptive designs where you can actually get the first 100 or 1,000 patients. And if you can guarantee that you've got enough precision and information around that first cohort, they'll give you a slightly wider license and then a wider license. There are no good examples today of successes behind that, 
but, it mean, but they are really, really looking for the first pilots to kind of do that with. So the mindset has shifted, even in the regulatory uh, agencies, and it's now up to the industry to work on developing the most optimal way to do it. It's not easy, because people are very traditional, even our own academic scientists and physicians, and you know this, yeah. they still think of the randomized controlled trial as the guru, so will they really accept new algorithms? You know, whenever you guys come up with a black box, you know, new computational AI, they go, I don't understand it, I'm gonna go back to my traditional methodology. So we have to work with the FDA on even what are the algorithms that they would accept behind some of these new approaches that we have. Yeah. No, the, Cure, the Cures Act has supported this immensely by putting money and faster review times around priority disease areas. So you look at what they want to do for rare diseases, for cancers, they really have said, we want to shorten the review time. You want to, we want to look to see how we can not just get the review time, but work on different models to bring and accelerate uh, innovation around this. So they, they will help you to design your programs around this. There's also like the, the, what the NIH is going to be focusing on, so how do we work with the academic associations for key diseases to help them to partner on doing the trials in completely different ways. So there is a lot, lot, lot being, uh, being done in the regulatory space as well. Just another, another, another uh, key point. In Europe, the use of real-world evidence, there's a whole work stream that's being uh, reported out right now where the Europeans will now start to use much of the electronic health records and be able to get claims from it or to be able to use it to leverage uh, new indications or life cycle management or subpopulations. So there is a huge move uh, towards it and the regulators themselves have actually written a white paper, they're going, it's going through reviews right now uh, around it. So it's moving very quickly. That's Europe, that's the same in the US. So also real world, there's, there's the first examples of real world data in, in labels that have just, just come up last week. And you know that the FDA approved the first Drugs Plus, the, the Proteus pill, which is a chip on a tablet for schizophrenia. Right? So these are examples right now that they're embracing the technology. In fact, last year alone, the FDA approved 36 health apps. Okay, so it's moving. It's interesting. You, you had just mentioned um, mindset. And, you know, one of the things that uh, at Startup Health we, we, we preach is, and we had talked about earlier, the eight mindsets that are so important. How important is that in, in Big Pharma and at Sanofi? So uh, you can't underestimate the power of having a vision um, to actually shift people towards a new goal. You know, it's, it's difficult in Big Pharma, and I have several colleagues here from our company, you know, in every pharma company, it's very, you join for a noble cause because people can be doing many other things in their life, uh, but they join the industry to kind of say, can we really shift healthcare? But very quickly after a few years, you get into, what's my next quarter gonna look like? What's my annual budget gonna look like? What's my profit gonna look like? And am I actually meeting expectations? But we, we try to really shift the conversation, especially in the science organization, to say, remember why you joined, the end goal is how do we actually improve the lives of millions of people through the privilege of the innovation that we can bring to them and do that in the most responsible manner. And that's the motivational part. Yeah. And now with technology, people are recognizing, wow, you know, the things that we could do and dream about that we never thought about before is so powerful, right? Yeah. And I think that we just, we have to constantly reinforce and communicate that. Otherwise, the day-to-day -day becomes the next quarter, the yeah. next year. 
Yeah. And, uh, and that's one of the big reasons why we want younger people coming in. We want the genomials to join industry as well because you're purpose-driven. We want that purpose. It's so par powerful in the company and then you can keep us true to our compass. Uh, so that's uh, if that helps you. Right. You, you can pay people to show up, but you can't, you can't buy their hearts. No, right? you can't. No, exactly. Yeah. Uh, any other uh, questions? Yeah. Uh, here. Oh, you got the microphone. There you go. Hi. Amit, great talk. Hi. Your talk about your moonshot was really inspiring. Thank you. Now, you talked about a global outlook towards drug development. Yeah. When you look around the world uh, in terms of regulators, are there areas in which people are more innovative than the... FDA? You know, so it's, very, it's a very, very good question. I think that, uh, so Europe and US are moving quickly towards what I'd say the conventional novel approaches, right? Mm. But to be fair, I think that if, if I was to look, and I, I mentioned China, right? Mm. China has 150, China's moving very quickly in the regulatory space right now. So mm. they, they're willing to join global programs, they're willing to actually sort of become part of a global community, um, and they're really ramping up their regulatory, their piece. But if I look at healthcare shifts in China, they already have 150 cloud hospitals, right? Think about that. With the volume that they have, and they can do it. So I think that now, the ability to then leverage that in research, to actually make it part of a community, to deliver healthcare, to deliver research, to get into the patient group, uh, populations in their new healthcare system, I think it's gonna, it's gonna happen. So I, I think, I don't know, but if we were to go to China and said, can we do a telehealth study with you guys as a research project, I think we could do. We haven't conceptualized it, but they've, they've, they've got the infrastructure already set up. Great. Absolutely. Hi, thank you for a very insightful uh, conversation. I was wondering if you see digital health playing a big role in increasing the um, diversity of the populations participating in clinical trials, for example, women, children, and people from uh, other regions otherwise than uh, the States and Europe? So, so I, I couldn't quite get the full question. I think the microphone wasn't loud enough, sorry. Was it about the diversity of the population in the trials? Exactly. Okay. Like, uh, what role could digital health play in increasing the diversity of the uh, populations participating in trials? You know, so one of the biggest issues we have today, and uh, it's part of the individualization, Today in industry, we try to, and actually it's an academic exercise and a regulatory issue, the patient becomes an average, right? And we talked a bit about this, Yes. Right? No one patient is the same as the next. You know, it doesn't matter if you've got asthma, but if you're a 65-year-old asthmatic who's got a bunch of other diseases and you're a 35-year-old asthmatic who gets exercise and uses asthma, you're different. And if you have to climb up steps, your whole, your whole ecosystem is different. Your genetics are different. Your population is different. So, you know, what we want to do right now is this whole the, the technology is going to enable us to become individualized. Because then I can know your genome, your transcriptome, your proteome, your response to the drug, and what signals are going switching on and off. I can know your behavioral setup. I can know your social, your social ecosystem. I can know if you've got four kids that actually, by the way, one of the reasons I get asthma is because you know, they've got pets and things like that and they run around and you know, they come back with all these viruses, right? I mean, we, we can know that and then we can actually understand what can we adjunct to make the treatment relevant for you. And by, the more we can get into at-home virtual trials in your own setup, the more we can learn about that. And by the way, that's also the biggest criticism we have as an industry. We develop drugs today in placebo control, randomized trials in a very clean setting. 
And then people go, well, I have no idea whether that actually reflects how my patients get treated back at home. Right? So now if I develop the data with you in your setting, that argument goes away. So that is the fundamental shift in, in this, whole, um, this whole system. I was going to just add also, not only with the drug development and, and dosing and treating, but also now you can track really in real time adherence um, and the, the social effects of it, right? Is, is somebody eating or getting up later or depressed or all from the wearables, right? It's completely. And, you know, the one thing that, that you know, is most interesting is we can learn more about the diseases today than we have, conven we have conventional endpoints. So if you just take atopic dermatitis, there are great scores for you know, itching and you know, what, what effect you have if you've got a bit of eczema. But actually, the one thing we don't capture in our trials is, well, actually, 